Well, hey there, church. It is so good to be with you in this moment. My name is Frank Lucas. In case you don't know who I am, I am one of the pastors here for Community Covenant Church. And as always, it is a privilege, an honor, a blessing to be able to share God's word with you today. And so with that, I'd like to invite you to grab your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 24 to 29 uh, in a little bit. I will be reading from the New Living Translation in case you have something different at home, but we'll also have the words on the screen as well. Now, we've been in the Sermon on the Mount since the Sunday after Easter. Believe it or not, it's been about 20 weeks, and we took a short break for Mother's Day and then for Father's Day. Uh, However, for nearly half of the year, we've been studying three chapters in the book of Matthew, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, uh, known as the Sermon on the Mount. And to be honest with you, we could probably spend another 20 weeks on this easily if we wanted to. Uh, however, we are going to be transitioning into a new, see, uh, new study uh, over the coming weeks, uh, so stay tuned for that. But as our time in the Sermon on the Mount draws to a close, once again, I want to remind you that this is Jesus's inaugural sermon, if you will. He's teaching us about the kingdom of God. Now, as you heard before, this is not really a new idea, right? The reality is that every kingdom, every culture has certain values. If you've ever traveled, you you would know this to be true. Suppose you're traveling to New England for the first time. You would quickly observe what some of our values are. We're, we're not, uh, we don't have a high value of driving nicely, we'll say, right? Uh, we have a value of not enunciating certain, certain letters, right? We pick and choose what words we want to uh, say correctly. Uh, we have a high value of coffee, right? There's a Dunkin' Donuts pretty much on every corner in southeast New England. Other parts of the country, not the case. Right? You, you get the idea, right? When you travel, you start to see some of the values of those communities or those kingdoms, if you will. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's painting a picture for those listening. He's painting a picture for those listening then and now of what God's kingdom looks like and what the citizens of that kingdom, how they live their lives. What are the values, if you will? In the Sermon on the Mount, he provides with us our mission that we are to be salt of the earth, that we are to be the light of the world. He goes on to describe the the life of a kingdom citizen. He guides us through some spiritual practices, what it looks like to live generously, how to pray, how to forgive, how to fast. And and then he kind of turns a little bit of a corner and calls us to respond by not worrying, by not judging others, by loving others. And now, considering everything that we've heard, how then will you move forward? That's where we find ourselves today. What about my salvation, the question we're asking? Are you going to go back down the way you came? Or are you going to allow Jesus to shape your life as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? Now, also important to remember is that Jesus is really speaking to two groups of people here. He's speaking with his disciples, his immediate crowd. But then he's also speaking to the crowd beyond them, right? So his followers and then the crowd. Now, the reason I mention this is regardless of where you may find yourself in your faith journey in this moment, 
It could be your first time hearing any of this, or maybe you've been going to church your entire life, and this is uh, very familiar for you. The reason I mention this is that regardless of where you find yourself, these words are spoken for you. The words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount are curiously relevant to all people across all of human history. So with that, as we dive into this last passage of the Sermon on the Mount, let's pray, let's invite God to be with us in this moment. Heavenly Father, as we open up your word this morning, we want to invite you to be, to be present with us. Lord, that you would stir in our hearts, that you would allow us to be receptive to you as you reveal yourself to us. Lord, that we would be more than just hearers of your word, Father, but that we would be doers of it as well. Lord, that our life would bear fruit. So, Father, we commit this time to you, and we look forward to thanking you for all that you do, both in us and through us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. All right. So before we take a look at the passage for today, I do think it's important that we actually go back and look at a, what Jesus said just a couple of verses earlier in Matthew 7, verse 21. We covered this last week, uh, but I just want to go back to it real quick. It says, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, there's a couple of quick things to note in this passage. The first is this. It takes more than simply calling out to God, Lord, Lord. Like It takes more than this. When we confess with our mouths and we believe with our hearts, our lives will bear fruit. Jerry talks about this in last week's message. I would love to encourage you to go back and to listen to that if you haven't already. He did an awesome job with it. But that's number one. Not everyone who calls out Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the second thing that really stands out to me is Jesus is so bold in this moment, he drops a bomb on his audience, and he says, not everyone who calls out to who? He doesn't say not everyone who calls out to God. He says, not everyone who calls out to me. Not everyone who calls out to me. You realize what Jesus is saying here? Now, we're fortunate enough to know really how the rest of the story goes. We have the end of the book. We can go back and look at it. We're fortunate enough to know how the story even ends. And to be honest, I think the church, the big C church, should go and take a look because the reality is, hey, guess what? We already won. Like, we need to kind of remind ourselves of that. I think especially in today's day and age, like, hey, the battle's already been won, guys. Let's focus on that a little bit. But Jesus, in this passage, what he's doing is he's doing for the very first time, he's declaring himself as Savior. Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord. You are going to stand before me, he says, on the day of judgment. He's not just speaking on behalf of someone else. He is speaking from a position of true authority. He's been describing the kingdom of God, which happens to be his kingdom. Now, I imagine jaws were dropping left and right at this point in time. The crowds, uh, I would argue, even his disciples maybe, were amazed at this. Jesus is saying, hey, listen, guys, 
Everything I just described, I know you want to be a part of that. And to be a part of that, it's going to take more than you just saying, Lord, Lord. It takes more than a superficial faith. It takes more than just lip service. It takes more than an hour or two on Sunday morning and maybe an hour or two in a community group. Declaring Jesus as Lord, yes, it's important. Yes, it's critical. But what Jesus is saying is that just because you call him Lord doesn't mean you actually acknowledge him as Lord with your life. We all know people who cry out to God, Lord, Lord, but their faith is maybe only an inch or two deep. In 2017, Gallup had a poll of Americans asking if they believed in God. A resounding 87% answered yes. Just a couple of years ago, 87% of the people polled in the United States said, yes, I believe in God. Now I want to invite you to look around. This isn't meant to be judgmental, but do you really think that 87% of the country knows God? Jerry shared with us something last week that it was just an incredible visual I love. It says, when you see smoke coming from a chimney, it's an indication that there is a fire burning in the fireplace. We have 87% of our country saying there's a fire in the fireplace, but let me tell you what, there is not 87% of our chimneys giving off smoke. In our lives, they should bear fruit. But I watched church online every week. I marched. I protested. I stood. Maybe I even kneeled. I posted on Facebook. uh, Facebook. I took pictures with my Bible and my coffee and put them on Instagram to share with all the world. I prophesied in your name, Jesus. But what? His response is this. But I will reply, I never even knew you. But his reply, I never knew you. You see, church, it's not about what you know. It's not about what you do. It's about who you know. Let me tell you what, that stinks in the the workplace, but that is awesome when it comes to our faith. It's not about what you know. It's not about what you do. It's about who you know. Awful in work, awesome when it comes to our faith. In this moment, Jesus is sharing his desire to have a personal relationship with each and every one of us. He doesn't just want you to hear his words, hear his teaching. He wants to actually know you and to know you by name. And to know him requires that we move from simply being amazed admirers to faithful followers. It requires that we move from being amazed admirers to faithful followers. So what does it look like to be an amazed admirer? Well, this may be a sore subject for some of you, myself included, but let's take a look at a New England icon for a moment. I have that picture, the first one. Ah, there he is. That's awesome. Man, he's incredible. Tom Brady, if you're listening and you had the audio, 
Uh, there's a picture of Tom Brady in a, a beautiful white and blue and red uniform. And uh, this is what his uniform looks like now. Next image. Yeah. He still looks good. Uh, it's a sore subject for me. But here's the thing. When, when we think about this guy, Tom Brady, I am... Uh, fascinated by him. I'm a huge fan. I know a lot about him. I know a ton of statistics, all these sorts of things. Uh, but I'll be honest with you, I don't actually know him. I'd like to think I do, but I don't know him. I'm fascinated by his dedication, his dedication to physical health. His worth, his worth, his work ethic is unbelievable. His worth is unbelievable too, actually. His diet and routine uh, apparently have done wonders. Like he looks pretty good. He's still playing pretty good. He's in better physical condition than most of the guys half his age that he's playing with. But yet, despite all that, for some reason, I've not been able to bring myself to give up many of the foods that I enjoy uh, because of what he does in the results. Right? Like, I'm not giving up red meat. Not going to happen. Right? There's certain, like, I need my coffee. Frank runs on Dunkin'. Right? Like, there's certain avocado toast. Not happening. Avocado ice cream. Not happening. Like, it, it, it's incredible to think about. And here's the thing. What makes me an amazed, an amazed admirer is the fact that I look to him in awe of what he's done and what he's accomplished. But I'm not a faithful follower. I haven't devoted my life to him and to being like him. I know what he does and what he suggests, but I don't submit to it. I kind of sit on the sidelines. I'm pretty good at that. Now, it seems a little trivial when we think about maybe an athlete or if we think about a celebrity maybe in this way. But what about our faith? Is it still trivial then? Here's what Jesus says in, in Matthew 7, in verse 24, our primary text for the morning. He says, anyone who listens, some translations actually start with therefore or with so then, right? Like it's a turning point, but the translation we're reading today starts this way. Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise, like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rain comes in torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against that house, it won't collapse because it is built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish. Like, who, like a person who builds a house on sand. When the rains and floods come and the winds beat against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he taught with real authority, quite unlike their teachers of religious law. Jesus is providing us here as he closes out the greatest sermon of all time with another visual, another contrasting image. Going back to last week, we saw Jesus contrast the easy road from the difficult road. He contrasted the wide gate from the narrow gate, the good tree from the bad tree, the good fruit from the bad fruit. And now here we have again another contrast. We have two men, two houses, two foundations, one storm, and two very different outcomes. Before I was in full-time ministry, I was a, a builder. 
I've built many houses. I've remodeled many houses. Uh, I've worked on homes that were hundreds of years old. I've built brand new homes, and I've done repairs on newer homes. And what I found is this. The, the homes that are really worth anything are the homes that are uh, built with great care. Whether they're hundreds of years old or they're brand new, the, the homes that have good bones, good structure. Their owners kept up with the maintenance. They, they stayed on top of the repairs. They didn't let things go too far. I've worked on brand new homes and brand new developments that were crumbling. They had bad foundations. There were shortcuts taken in the building. There was no un- upkeep. People just kind of let them go. They picked bad products or whatever it may be. Sometimes I would be in neighborhoods that from the outside, these looked like little million-dollar homes. They were like little McMansions kind of going up all over the place. But I would get inside, and when you see them up close, and you start to actually look around, you see that it's shoddy. You see that the look from the street, really, it's just a facade. It's not indicative of what's on the inside. From the outside, they look the same, but structurally, they're a mess. They're worthless. And so Jesus here in this passage, he's, he's painting for us this beautiful contrasting image. Two houses that look identical from this side, uh, from the outside. They are indistinguishable from one another until, until the storm comes. And the storm comes in many ways. In the passage, Jesus is giving us this visual of wind and rain and floods, but the reality is, Uh, The storms of life, sometimes they come in that way, but many times they come in the form of tragedy or crisis or trauma or spiritual or emotional or physical uh, disruption, right? It could be a personal situation, a professional situation. It could be relational in nature. The reality is the storms of life come in all different shapes and forms. 2020 is uh, arguably a storm for pretty much everyone's life, just after, one after another after another, right? But what I know is this. The storm looks a little different for each and every one of us. I also know this, that if you haven't experienced the storm yet or a storm yet, or you're not in the middle of one right now, you will be at some point. It's going to happen. It's not a matter of if the storm comes. What it's a matter of is whether or not your house is going to stand up in the storm. That's really what's at question. Not if, but how are you going to fare when it happens? One of the things that I learned as a builder is this. You don't build strong foundations in the midst of the storm. You don't wait until the wind starts blowing to erect the house. You build in the ideal conditions so that you may see the ideal outcome. I've known people that have had issues with their roofs, right? They have issues that need repair. A big storm comes. Their house starts to leak. You get a phone call. They ask you to come and help stop because the water is pouring. You help them because the water is just pouring in the house. But guess what? There's only so much you can do in the rain. You pull a tarp over and you kind of hope for the best. Here's what I know. You can make patches in the middle of the storm, but to address the real issue requires time, planning, dedication, and execution in favorable conditions. Yet many of us wait until the storm to start building. We wait until the storm to start making patches. It's in the midst of the storm that we can put patches 
on our brokenness. But those patches will eventually give way. Now, just to make sure we're on the same page, maybe you're just now tuning in. When I say uh, house, I'm referring to your faith. I'm referring to your life, maybe your ministry. And I would argue most people, they don't build houses, metaphorically speaking, poorly intentionally. I don't think most people build bad houses on purpose. It's usually often, I would argue, the result of ignorance and neglect. That's why Jesus provides us with all these warning signs in the Sermon on the Mount. Hey, looks like you're headed the, right, uh, the wrong direction. You might want to turn here. Then a little further down the road, hey, you might want to make another turn. It's like your GPS, recalculating, recalculating, but you keep going. I was just on a road trip, and I couldn't get over how many signs I saw that say, warning, bridges freeze first. There had to be a 1,000 of them. It was incredible. Like you see one and then you drive another 100 yards and you see another one and so on and so forth. Like, hey, we get the idea. But those warning signs are there on purpose so you don't forget, so that you pay attention, so that you make some adjustments. The Sermon on the Mount is filled with warning signs for us. But what does Jesus do? What does he say? Anyone who hears and does is wise. Anyone who hears and ignores is foolish. There's no third option. There's A, there's B, there is no C. Now, some of us may think, great, all I have to do is do what Jesus says. Well, first of all, good luck. It's not possible. You can't do it. All right, like the, just look at the Sermon on the Mount, three chapters in the Bible, and let's kind of go through maybe a short, condensed uh, list, if you will. Right? Endure persecution. Be a light in a dark world. Be salt of the earth. Uh, salt of the earth. Not only should you not murder, you can't get angry. Not only should you refrain from adultery, you can't even lust. Don't seek revenge. Turn the other cheek. Love your enemies. Live generously. Forgive others. Don't worry about anything. Uh, do not judge others. Don't be hypocritical. Love others as yourselves. That's the condensed version. If you think, oh yeah, don't forget the part uh, where he says, I think it's in 548, Matthew 548. Yeah, be perfect. Yeah, if all you have to do is what Jesus says, Right? The reality is we can't just do what Jesus says. So what is Jesus talking about here? See, over and over and over again, the Sermon on the Mount calls us to come to terms with the reality that we cannot do this on our own apart from him. The teaching of Jesus on this northern shore of the Sea of Galilee shows us our desperate need for Calvary where Jesus gave us his life so that we can live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. The Sermon on the Mount points us from one mountain to a greater mountain, where we transition from sitting at the feet of Jesus, hearing his words, to kneeling at the feet of Jesus, our Savior, on a cross where our lives are changed for all eternity. Not for some time in the future, but for right now. And let me tell you, as I look around, as I look around, whether it be on Facebook, whether it be driving down the street, whether it be on Instagram, whatever, we need some more salt in this earth. We need some more light in the darkness. We need some more smoke coming out of chimneys. We need more lives changed by Christ. Not just people saying, Lord, Lord. So how then do we do this? How do we build our lives on a firm foundation upon the rock 
That is Jesus Christ, our cornerstone. A fundamental level, at a fundamental level, what we need to learn and truly understand, go from knowledge to belief, is this, that our foundation is not built by anything we do. Right? Our foundation is not built by doing. Our foundation is built by first, trusting, number two, surrendering, and number third, through devotion. Those are the tools required, trust, surrender, and devotion uh, of a citizen of, uh, excuse me, a citizen of the kingdom of God to build a house, a life, a ministry that stands firm against the storms of this world. Trust, surrender, devotion. Trusting in the creator of the universe so that you may have peace as his creation. Surrendering your will for his, surrendering your kingdom and your kingship for his kingdom and his kingship. Devotion, laying it all down at his feet and following him with every aspect of your life. Not just some of it, not just bits and pieces of it, but all of it. Not just when it's easy, when it's hard. A posture of trust, surrender, and devotion is what separates amazed admirers from faithful followers. Now I want to share with you an example of being an amazed admirer versus being a faithful follower as we, as we close out today. It may be a familiar example or illustration. I trust it's been used by thousands of preachers over the years, thousands of sermons, but it paints a beautiful picture, so just bear with me. In the year 1859, there was a, a French tightrope walker by the name of Charles Blondin who set up at Niagara Falls and crossed. He set up a tightrope that was 1,100 feet long, 160 feet in the air, and he went back and forth, back and forth with ease. He was an absolutely incredible showman. He knew how to draw a crowd. He knew how to get them cheering. He had a lot of admirers. They were amazed at what he could do. He went back and forth with different tricks, thousands and thousands of people. He went across blindfolded. He went across with a chair and balanced a chair on one leg and then stood on that chair with his arms behind his back. At one point, I hear he actually went out with the supplies needed to, to make a breakfast omelet and then made an omelet on the tightrope and then lowered it down to a boat 160 feet below him feeding a passenger breakfast. That's nuts. It's crazy. The crowds were amazed because he walked this rope with true authority. Authority over fear, authority over worry, authority over danger. But yet one of his most famous stunts has yet to been done, be done. He looked out the crowd and he grabbed something. He grabbed a wheelbarrow. I don't think it was a plastic temper wheelbarrow. But he wheels out a wheelbarrow. And he says, hey, do you, do you think I can do it? Do you think I can go across? And the crowd starts chanting, absolutely, yes, yes, yes. You can do it. You can make it all the way across. And he looks out at the crowd. And he says, well, then who, who's going to get in? 
And all of a sudden, the crowd went from cheering to silence. See, in the crowd that day were amazed admirers, but very few, in fact, only one faithful follower. There was only one faithful follower who decided to put his life on the line and to get in that wheelbarrow as they crossed from one side, inch by inch, 1,100 feet to the other side. Only one man. Why do I share this with you? Because Jesus, in the most famous sermon of all time, not only describes for us the kingdom of heaven and what it looks like, but he invites us, you and me both, to be a part of that kingdom. To come off of the sideline and to get into the wheelbarrow. You see, when Jesus finished, when he finished that sermon, it says the crowds were amazed. But Jesus never asked to be admired. His goal wasn't to simply amaze the crowds. What did he say? He said, come and follow me. Trust in me. Surrender to me. Devote yourself to me wholly. So the question we have to ask ourselves this morning is, are we more than just hearers of the word? Are we fully trusting in him? Or are we trusting in our own world and in ourselves? Are we surrendering to his kingship and to his kingdom, to his will? Or are we surrendering not to him, but to our own? Are we living fully devoted to God or to something or to someone else? Are we sitting off in the sidelines? Or are we all in, in the wheelbarrow? Jesus reveals to us in the sermon that we have a sin problem that is far greater, that is far wider, that is far deeper than Niagara will ever be. And the only way to get to the other side is through him. So that means what we need to do is we need to put all of our junk into this barrel, our brokenness, our guilt, our shame, our anxiety, our past, our present, our future, Our time, our energy, our resources, our finances, our our security, all of it, every last drop of who we are needs to go into this barrel so Jesus can pick it up and do what only he can do with it to bring us from one side to the other, not just someday in the future, but right now, so that we can live as citizens of the kingdom of God and we can actually be salt of the earth in light of the world. That is what Jesus is inviting us to in the Sermon on the Mount. So, as I said, there were two groups of people listening in. There were the followers and then the crowd. There were the faithful and the amazed. Those who admired those who followed. Here we are 2,000 years later. The same two crowds exist. 
And I don't know where you find yourself in this moment. But as we close our time together, I want to I give you an opportunity to respond to the invitation from Jesus. To put it all in the barrel. To lay it all on the line. To go from simply being a hearer of the word to a doer of the word. Not by anything you do, but by what he has done for you. But the choice, the choice is up to you. God gives you the, the privilege and the, the tremendous weight and responsibility of that choice. He leaves that to you. Now, I wish I could choose for you. Because at a hundred times out of a hundred, I would choose this for you. But I can't. That's, that's solely up to you. And with the responsibility, with the, the weight of that decision, why wait? Why put this decision off any longer? We are called not to be amazed admirers, but rather faithful followers. Will you respond to that invitation? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the glory of the Sermon on the Mount, that you reveal your kingdom to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the, the invitation from him, the invitation to be more than admirers. Now, Father, I know that you know in our hearts right now, you know deep down where we're at. You know where we stand. We ask that you give us the courage and the strength to take just even one step towards you. it's there that we'll find you. Father, whether we're making this decision for the first time or maybe it's a decision we made long ago and we just need to, to turn back towards you, we need to reorient ourselves to you and to the gospel, Father, I would ask that you give us the strength to do that and that you be with us now as we acknowledge you, Lord. We acknowledge you, Lord, as Lord and Savior over our lives, not just with our words, Father, not just with our hands, but with our hearts. Father, we acknowledge that we are broken, that we are in need of you. We acknowledge that you died for us, conquering death so that we may be free, free from guilt, free from guilt, free from shame. Father, that it's by the power of your spirit that we can put into practice your teaching that we are able to trust in you alone, that we surrender our will for yours, and that we live as fully devoted followers, now and for all of our days. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ.
by whom all things are possible. And all God's people said, amen.